Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from an off-site campus or uh, on the internet or podcast or uh, in the chapel or warehouse here at Long Point. We're glad that you guys are along uh, for the ride uh, too. Before I get into what I want to talk about today, I just want to mention that uh, uh, my book, the first one I've ever published, is uh, going to be out this week um, everywhere and we are uh, making it available today uh, here at Seacoast uh, for you guys. I thought I would uh, tell you a little bit about what it's about. It, it's, um, it's hopefully a fun read. It's not heavy, deep theology. Those of you who go to church here would probably not expect that. Uh, but uh, it, in, in the book, I do what I think I enjoy doing more than anything else, and that's I, I tell stories. Um, it's stories about everyday people. I tell my story a little bit. I tell some of your stories. In fact, one of the reasons you ought to buy the book is to see if you're in it. Uh, what I did was I changed the names and some circumstances to protect the guilty. Okay. And, uh, but I tell stories of everyday people and their struggles with, uh, faith, doubt, hope, life, uh, love, sex, uh, politics, um, money, uh, just stuff everybody struggles with or, or deals with it in some way. And uh, my hope is that uh, if you do purchase one, that you'd enjoy reading it, number one. And number two, honestly, my goal was that maybe you would uh, give a copy uh, to a friend who uh, maybe is having some real challenges uh, in their relationship with God or maybe even a friend that's far from God. Uh, my hope is that it would draw somebody to know Jesus just a little bit better. Uh, one of my mentors in preaching uh, a few years ago, I asked him, what makes a good sermon? And here's what he said. He said, uh, make them laugh, make them cry, give them Jesus. And uh, that's kind of what we try to do uh, with the book. So anyway, um, it'll be available. And uh, if you guys uh, following the service, campus pastors, you guys can give instructions uh, to what you do. Uh, how much does it cost? In the uh, bookstores, it's $20. We're doing it for $15. And $1 goes to the Dream Center to support uh, the work there. So anyway, that's the book. That's the commercial and uh, that's uncomfortable for me, but I uh, hope you enjoy it. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever read a paper or maybe gone on the web and seen a news article or TV, and it stirred up some pretty strong emotions? The story, you know, you, you look at it and you go, well, I wonder what Jesus would do in light of that. What does the Bible say? How should I respond you know, maybe it's as recent as this week and you read uh, arguments around immigration, maybe, and uh, some of the political issues around that, and you go, you know, I wonder what Jesus would say about that. I wonder what the Bible says. Or maybe it's the story of a Georgia man who was executed recently for a murder that he may or may not have committed. And you go, would, what would Jesus do? Are there biblical principles that apply? You know, if you... Um, if you follow the story of Jesus, Jesus did a couple of things. He told stories all of the time. It's one of the reasons I think he's so fascinating. Is he took everyday stories and he related biblical truth to it and challenged people's thinking with the stories that he told. In Luke chapter 13, uh, very interesting, he used stories right off the wire of Fox News Jerusalem of the time. Uh, he, he took a couple of stories about some Galileans uh, who had evidently um, been uh, abused by the government of the time, by Pilate, and uh, to the point of death. And he also took a story about a tower 
that fell, I don't know if it was an earthquake or what it was, but a tower fell, 18 seemingly innocent people died. Everybody was talking about those subjects. In fact, they were asking Jesus, where was God in all of this? What's the God point of view? And Jesus took those stories and uh, he used the trending topics of the day to teach his disciples a biblical worldview or a, 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 a God viewpoint on, on how they ought to think about those things. And oftentimes, it was, um, it was probably not what they were thinking at the time because they, they felt something, they emoted with something. And Jesus would say, okay, here's a, here's a bedrock principle. Here's something you need to understand about that story. And at times, it probably stirred up a little bit of controversy. Now, this is the last week of an unusual series. We've never done one quite like this. We've done Q&A series before. But we've tackled some interesting subjects with this one that we call trending. Uh, the first week we talked about heaven. In fact, a couple of weeks we spent on the afterlife in heaven. And then we talked about hell, which is a controversial trending topic. Uh, we talked about politics. I guess that's a little bit uh, controversial. And then we uh, stopped to remember 9-11. And we learned some principles from there. And then last week we dealt uh, with ep- economics from a biblical point of view. Now, evidently, we've stirred up just a bit of controversy with this series. Um, If you're a guest, I just want to say to you, this is your first time here. I'm normally pretty boring, okay? It's just, you know, in fact, my publisher uh, has called me several times over the last few months and said, could you say something at least a little controversial? Because that sells books. And I try, but I I haven't been able to until this week, evidently. But... um, We don't shy away from tackling difficult, hard issues. And we never, ever have. And we try to stick as close uh, to uh, the Bible as we can as as we're dealing with them. And today, I'm going to close this series out with a couple of really lightweight trending topics. And uh, so what I want to do is I'm going to touch on a couple of things. And, And let me just say... I don't expect everybody in this place to agree with everything that I say on these things. I always say at Seacoast, you don't have to agree with me. You have what? A right to be wrong. Okay? And, and, so, and, so, and so let's lighten up just a little bit at the very beginning. But we're, we're going to deal with a couple of topics, trending topics. And then, um, and then what, what I'm excited about is at the end, I'm going to give you three principles that I think we can learn from everything that we've talked about, all the trending topics and what, what God is saying to us. Is that fair enough? The Scripture in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, God says this. He says, Come now, let us reason together. Let us reason together. God's not afraid of questions. And uh, so we're going to delve into a couple of things that people have asked me, honestly, and I don't know. One of them I've dealt with before. Others, uh, The other one I, I really have it, and we'll try to uh, jump into it just a little bit. The first trending topic that I want to talk about today is should, should Americans approve of gay marriage? Now, you would have had to have been asleep for the last few years not to be aware of this topic. And it's a growing, growing, growing topic, and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Here's the argument. The argument goes that there are a certain percentage of people in our society who are gay. Uh, uh, Secondly, gayness is not so much a matter of choice as it is genetics. And then the third argument would be gay couples should enjoy all of the rights of heterosexual couples, including the right to marry. Now, what, what is the opinion, basically, of Americans on this issue? Uh, the Pew Research poll uh, recently asked 
uh, three questions, and here's what they came up with. First question was, do you approve of same-sex marriage? 39% of Americans said yes. 53% of Americans said no. 8% of Americans said, I'm not sure. The second uh, question was, do you approve of same-sex civil unions? In other words, uh, maybe not gay marriage, but maybe legal rights for uh, people who are living together outside of a normal, what we would consider a, a normal uh, heterosexual uh, marriage relationship. 57% said yes, I approve of, of same-sex civil unions. 37% said no. 6% said they're not sure. And the third question was this, is homosexual behavior morally wrong? 49%, almost half, said yes. 42% said, well, that depends. It's not a moral issue. And um, then 9% said no. So where, where do we stand on this whole deal? I, I, I want to talk to you just a minute about, um, about some kind of personal deals. The first thing I want to say to you is this. If you are uh, here in this building or in one of the campuses or you're listening to me uh, on the Internet, if you are gay, consider yourself gay, or you are straight, if you are living together in a long-term uh, living situation or you've just kind of shacked up, moved in together, or you are in a uh, church-recognized uh, marriage, maybe a long-term marriage, you have my unconditional acceptance. I mean that. I accept you. The Bible commands me to, and I do it willingly. Romans chapter 15 and verse 7 says this, Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. He says, you know what, the bigger issue in anything, regardless of what you feel about any of these, these issues, is what brings praise to God? What honors the Lord? And he said that, and he's speaking to Christians here, and he's, and he's dealing with uh, trending topics, controversial issues of their day. He said, you know what, if you consider yourself strong, and he does say that there, there are uh, strong believers and then there are weaker believers. There are believers who the bedrock for their faith is if God said it and it's in the Word and can be substantiated, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not only believe it, but I'm going to act on it and do it regardless of what I feel. Those are strong believers. And there are weak believers that maybe are going, you know what, I know God's Word says that, but I'm not sure I'm ready for that. He says, the strong should accept the weak. He said, you accept. That's your obligation as a church is to accept one another. Acceptance means I love you. And I mean that. I do. I uh, oftentimes at this church say, I love being your pastor. And I really do. I love being your pastor regardless of what your political views are, regardless of how you feel about these issues, uh, regardless of uh, what you struggle with or don't struggle with, uh, regardless of what you did last night uh, or this week, whenever. I love you and I want you to know that. And I accept you and I consider it an honor to be your pastor regardless of whether I agree with your choices or your actions. I accept you. 
Now what you need to know is that there is a difference between acceptance and approval. Approval involves some level of backing or, uh, uh, you know, uh, agreement that I, I, I'm, I'm for you on this. I agree with you on this issue. Best way I could describe it is, um, let's get into another controversial topic real quick, like Gamecocks versus Tigers, okay? <laughs> Most of you know that I am a Gamecock fan. It's just, okay, now, now no shouts of joy or anything. I am a Gamecock fan, and, and, it, and it just happens to be I moved to Colorado. I grew up, or I moved from Colorado. I'm actually down deep a Colorado Buffalo fan. But I moved here and I decided I'm going to adopt the customs of the house. And so the first thing we did was we bought football seats that had both a Gamecock and a Tiger on on the same seat. They were split. People accused me of being wishy-washy. And so at some point I I went into a deep time of fasting and prayer. And I, (laughs) I decided to be a Gamecock fan. I just decided that. I just decided it. Now, in my family, I'm the only one. Okay, I, I, there's Tiger fans, there's several of those, there's Tennessee fans, there's, there's just various people. I'm the only one that really, you know, follows the way. And um, so, so somebody uh, recently uh, said, sent me a, an email and said, okay, um, from this church, said, could you this week support Clemson and South Carolina because they're both playing this week. And, and my response to her was this, and, and I'm honest. I said, I am a Clemson fan. I am a Clemson fan. I pull for Clemson every weekend except one in November when they're playing the Gamecocks, and then I hope the Gamecocks beat them like a two-year-old at Walmart. You know what I mean? That's just... <laughs> no applause. I don't want to divide the church. I know this is a controversial issue. But now listen to me. So... So, if you ask me, do I accept the Tigers? Yes, I do. If you ask me to support them on that one day in November, you're asking me to go against my convictions. You're asking me to move from acceptance to approval. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a light issue, I know. Some of you will never speak to me again uh, because of just my saying that, but, you know. Listen, let, 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 me, let me just say this, since I've been skewered today in the paper anyway. Um, the, uh, if you can't laugh about your sports team or your politics, you take yourself just a tad too seriously, okay? I, I'm just being honest about that. I love the scripture in Proverbs that says, uh, uh, basically it says, lighten up, uh, you'll have a better life. And, and I think that's probably what a lot of us need to do. But in, in life, my responsibility is to accept everyone. But I can only give approval to what I believe to be the known will of God. Do you understand that? I gladly accept. And at Seacoast, understand, I'm going to say it again. You are welcome here. You are wel- if you never agree with me, you are welcome here. And I love you. But I can only give approval to what I believe to be the known will of God. So what is the known will of God as it relates to marriage as a whole? Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 21 says this. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And he took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the place from which he had taken it. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to Adam. 
At last, Adam exclaimed. Now, let, let me just back up there. Just let, let's give the context. Let's give the context. God created everything. Everything that God did, He said, it is good. It is good. He created the earth. It's good. The heavens, it's good. The animals, it's good. You read Genesis, it's all good. He creates Adam, and that's the only thing that He does not pronounce good. I mean, he, he, it's close, but it's not good because He says, it's not good that man be alone. You were created for relationship, okay? And so, and so, and so, this is so funny. I, you gotta, you gotta look between the lines in the Bible to really get the humor of the thing. So, so God, God says it's not good that man should be alone, and so He parades all the animals in front of Adam, and He said, "Is there anything that catches your eye?" And I can imagine Adam going, "Well, the aardvark's not bad, but the nose is a little off-putting." And so God says, no problem. So he puts Adam to sleep. He puts Adam to sleep. And he takes a rib from his side and he creates the perfect relationship for him in Eve. And Adam wakes up and he looks and he goes, at last. That's what I'm talking about, he says to God. Okay, let's go on. At last, Adam exclaimed. She is part of my own flesh and bone. She will be called woman because she was taken out of a man. This explains. Now, when the writer of Genesis says, this explains, what he's saying is that God is setting up an institution here. This explains what marriage is about. This explains the why that there is a marriage. He says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And that's speaking of the sexual relationship. So what is marriage according to to God? It's a sacred bond. It's between a man and a woman. It's instituted and publicly entered into before God and it's consummated by the sexual relationship. And it's been recognized as such by believers down through the century. I explained it in a message a couple of years ago like this. God created marriage. He is the author of marriage. He created the institution and as such, He owns the copyright on marriage. I wrote this book. In the very front of this book, um, on about the second or third page, there is a, a section that looks like this, and up at the top it says copyright 2011 by Greg Surratt. Let me explain that. That means, theoretically, I own the copyright on this book. Actually, the publisher does. They put the money up front, and they give me a small, <laughs> as a first-time author, very small royalty on the books that, that are sold. And because I own the copyright, if you wanted to take one of the stories in here, you liked it, but you didn't like all of the story, and you said, you know what, I want to repost this on my blog, but I don't like this particular part, so I'm going to adjust this, and I'm going to make it better fit to what I think should be right, and you post it on that blog, guess what you've just done? You have violated my copyright. You don't have the right to do that because you didn't write it. Does that make sense? God has the copyright on marriage. It's His institution. Um, You know, you cannot alter it without consulting the owner 
of the copyright. And honest people, I mean, I'm not putting anybody down. Honest people would say, well, you know what? I think the definition of marriage should include men and men or women and women. You have a right to the thought, but you don't own the copyright, so you cannot change the definition. God defined marriage between man and woman. Uh, You say, well, you know what? Uh, To take it just a little bit further, I think it makes more sense in the age that we live in, you might say, to be sexually active before the ceremony. Uh, You know, I mean, saying that you you should not be involved sexually before the ceremony, before the actual marriage, wedding, especially if you're in love and all this kind of stuff. Greg, that's archaic. And by the way, I'll refer to that. I have a a chapter on sex in here that I wish that every single and every, uh, you know, every single that, that is looking at marriage Uh, should read that kind of explains more of a biblical foundation for that. But you know what? That might be something that you you think, but you cannot, you don't own the copyright to marriage, so you you can't make the rules. I love uh, a quote by J. Vernon McGee that says, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You know what I mean? (laughs) Would, Would you agree that most problems in life come when we think we have a better idea than God. Anybody else agree with that? So where do we stand on gay marriage? As Seacoast, we accept everyone, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. The church has, has handled this wrongly, I think, in many ways, uh, and we hope that we don't. We accept everyone, but we cannot approve of using the word marriage for any other relationship than a man and a woman because that's how God defines it, and He owns the copyright. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the first subject. Second one... Uh, is um, a little bit more difficult. I'm just going to hit barely because people have been asking me uh, about this Palestinian thing. Should Palestinians be granted statehood? Um, Another hot trending topic, uh, Palestinians and Israelis occupy much of the same uh, piece of real estate. They fought over it for years, over the right for each to exist. The United Nations currently is taking up their case. Very controversial. What does the Bible say? If anything should be our response. And And uh, let me just give uh, the argument. The argument would be the Palestinians would say we were there first. We have a right to self-government. Israel has not abided by their original boundaries from 1948 when the country was formed. Let's look at biblical history just a minute. I'll make a couple comments on it, and then we'll move on. The earliest recorded history of that piece of land is found in Genesis chapter 10. Palestine, what we know as Palestine today, or Israel, was occupied by a group of Canaanite nations. And God promises Abraham that he's going to give him and his descendants the land. In Genesis 15 and verse 18, he says it like this. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I I have given this land over to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites and any other sites that might be in the area. (laughs) Then Genesis 17 and verse 8 basically repeats it and says, Yes, I will give all this land of Canaan to you and to your offspring forever, and I will be their God. It's a promise that God made to Abraham. Now, it was not fulfilled in Abraham. In fact, it began to be fulfilled uh, many years later in Joshua, a great leader. And Joshua began to actually inhabit 
the promised land. The largest expansion of the kingdom was under King David and his son Solomon. That was the glory years of Israel. Ultimately, because of disobedience to God, the kingdom was divided into Israel and Judah. And it, the, the land space begins to diminish as outside enemies come in until finally Judah is conquered in 586 B.C. and all of the people are carried off to Babylonian exile. Now, the land of Israel is subsequently ruled by a number of different nations. And I know this sounds like a history deal. I just want to give you just a little bit of it just to give a little background. Let me, let me tell you who ruled Israel up until the current time. Uh, the Babylonians obviously were first. And then the Persian Empire began in 539 B.C. when they uh, conquered the area. And then in 333 B.C., Greece under Alexander the Great uh, became the rulers of the area of uh, Israel or Palestine. And then in 163 B.C., there was a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. And Israel, for a few years, about a century, became independent. In fact, Hanukkah, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, celebration of Hanukkah, is the celebration of the rededication of the temple during the Maccabean Revolt. And then in 63 B.C., around the time of Jesus, Jesus was obviously a little bit later than that, but the Romans under Pompey took over, and Herod became the ruler over what was Israel, the, the Herod the Great, and he's the one that's referred to uh, uh, in the, the story of Jesus' birth as uh, the, the one that the, uh, uh, the wise men, the magi, came to, and they wanted to find Jesus. And Herod then wiped out all of the young boys, two years old and under, in that area. Well, he, that was during the rule of the Romans. And then in 395 A.D., you have the rule of the Byzantines, uh, which was the eastern part of Rome. And it, it basically was a Christian uh, uh, nation at that point. And then uh, in 636 A.D., the Muslims began to rule it. And for the next almost century, there were... Muslims and then there were Christians and then there to be Muslims and there were Christians and there were the Crusades and all of the things that happened there. And then in 1517 AD, the Ottoman Empire, which is Turkey, uh, began to rule and ruled for the next 400 years until the end of World War I. And then the area of Palestine or Israel came under British rule uh, in 1917. Uh, and then at the end of World War II, uh, the uh, uh, Israel became independent in 1948. In 1947, the United, the United Nations made a resolution that recommended the establishment of two separate nations in the land, Israel and an Arab nation, which would be the Palestinians that we know of now. The Arabs rejected it. They said, no, we're not going to have that. And so on May 14, 1948, Israel declared its independence from England. And the very next day, on May 15th, they were attacked by the four surrounding nations, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon, along with Iraq. And most people thought that Israel would be wiped off the map. They'd been a nation for one day. Over the next year, Israel surprised the world and succeeded in driving the invaders back and actually took some of their territory. Uh, uh, and from an Israeli point of view, it was so that they could better defend uh, their area. During that time, there was a large population ex exchange about an equal number, almost a million Palestinians were either willingly left or were driven out of, of their uh, homeland. And the same number of Israels, uh, Israelis were driven out or left the neighboring Arab countries. Uh, 
the Israelis were from Europe and Middle East. Uh, the Jewish people, uh, they were welcomed as Jewish citizens. The Palestinians that were uh, left or were driven out were refused acceptance by their Arab nation, neighbors. They were kept in concentration camps or at least not given um, uh, rights of, of citizens. And Arab spokesmen uh, today claim that, that that was done in order pr- to preserve the Palestinian people so that they could one day reclaim Palestine and, and destroy Israel. So that's kind of where we are today. What are the negotiations about? If it was about the size of Israel and the amount of land that they have and who should have what land, it could probably be settled pretty easily. But it's, it's about something much deeper than that. It, it is about Israel's right to exist. The surrounding neighbors, most of them, and the Palestinian leaders do not believe that Israel has a right to exist. And as long as that is in question, it's going to be difficult to negotiate. It's going to be difficult to have to have peace. And so what should our stance be? Our stance, I believe, should be to know that God loves both groups of people. God loves the Palestinians. God loves the Israelis. that are there. I, I recently visited, as you know, Israel. I did my best to talk to as many people as I could. I talked to um, Orthodox Jews, several of them. I talked to um, Muslims who were Palestinians. I talked to Christian Palestinians there are good people all the way the, around there. And God, you, you need to, as we, you know, this issue gets so hot, we need to understand God loves all of them. But you also need to know that there are evil forces at work bent on destroying Israel. Uh, Hitler was bent to destroy Israel. There are evil forces, and I'm not saying that all the Muslim people are evil, not at all. But there are evil leaders who I believe are satanically inspired to destroy Israel. Because we as America support Israel, that's why they terrorize us. Because they are bent on the destruction of Judeo-Christian values. And uh, so we need to understand that. We also need to know that according to Romans chapter 11, God has future plans for the Jewish people. There are Christian theologians that are all over the board on that. But as we read Romans 11, we know, you just got to see that God has future plans for the Jewish people. So what do I encourage you to do? Keep your eyes open. Watch what's happened. Pray, 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 pray for peace in, the, in, in Israel for all of the people. Okay? So that's kind of where I am on that. Now, let me, let me talk about three things real quickly as I close that we can take away from this entire series. Talking about trending. Here's number one. The truth transcends trends. The truth transcends trends. I want you to read the next verse with me out loud together. Jesus Christ, a lot of times when we read out loud, we move our lips together. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just stop that right there. Let's say that again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of you ever heard that before? I'll bet you didn't tag the end of that verse to it. Let's, Let's see what the rest of it says. Let's read this out loud. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. He says, the truth transcends trends. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. So don't be led astray by strange new ideas. There will always be a new way. There will always be a new somebody on TV or a new politician or a new preacher that has a a new way, a different way. But you need to understand truth transcends trends. 
Each generation will have its own questions. The questions that I face today are not the same as my father faced, you know, 40 years ago. The questions that your children will face 40 years from now will not be the same questions as you do. And God is not afraid of questions because the truth transcends time. So I want to challenge you to be diligent about searching the Scriptures to find solutions. Don't just go with a knee-jerk reaction to whatever this extreme politician or this extreme preacher or this extreme point of view goes on. Be diligent to search the Scriptures. Take responsibility for your own growth. If you're looking to me to grow you up and feed you all the time, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You know, it's not so much in this church. A lot of my friends... You know, it would tell me, uh, that, and it happens every once in a while here, that people will come and go, you know, I'm just not getting fed in this church. You'll have people 20 years old or 30 or 40 or 60 years old that say, I'm just not getting fed in this church. To me, that's just goofy. It's, it's like this. A lot of you guys know that we have grandchildren. I like, like dozens of them nearly, it seems like. <laughs> And um, there's always, there were two of them over at our house last night. We've almost always on a weekend, we've got them. And uh, uh, sometime last week we had uh, uh, my, my youngest one, uh, uh, little guy, you know, Judah. And, and Debbie says, would you mind feeding Judah? And he's like six months old or something. And it's a joy for me to sit there and feed him like this. And I just love it and get a lot of pleasure out of it. But you know what? I was thinking, when Judah becomes 16... If it's time for him to eat and he crawls up in grandpa's lap, opens his mouth, says, feed me, that's just weird. That's how a lot of churches are. That's how a lot of Christians are. You know, when you're little, yes. When you're brand new, yes. But when you're in the Lord just a little bit, feed yourself. Feed yourself. Take personal responsibility to feed yourself. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Be mature and full grown in the Lord, measuring up to the full stature of Christ, then we will no longer be like children, forever changing our minds. Do you know anybody like that? About what we believe because someone has told us something different or because someone has cleverly lied to us and made the lie sound like a truth. That's going to happen. You're going to get people who are going to... They they are good at speaking, and they are going to make lies sound like truth. It just, that's happened all down through life. And the Bible says, feed yourself. Get familiar. That's why you've got to be in the Word every day. You've got to be reading the Word and praying and ask God to illuminate truth. Truth transcends trends. Let me give you a second. We are being transformed and changed by the truth that we believe. We are being transformed and changed. Whatever it is that you believe, the truth that you believe is changing. At the very first week of this series, I said what you believe about death, hell, heaven, and eternity will determine how you live your life every day. I would also say that what you believe about God, economics, politics, will determine how you live. Romans 12, 2 says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect uh, His will really is. You know what? Here's something I'm learning the older I get. I can be easily deceived. Would you say that together? 
Not Greg can be easily deceived. I can be easily deceived. Would you turn to the person next to you and just say that to them? Not them, you. I can be easily deceived. My passion and my emotion can cloud the truth. I get passionate about something. I get emotional about something. And it can cloud the truth. That's why we need to humbly admit our need for God and His grace. Every day, on every issue, and be transformed by the truth. Here's the third thought. How you hold the truth is as important as the truth that you hold. How you hold the truth is as important as the truth that you hold. Honestly, some of us are more concerned about being right than being like Christ. In the body of Christ, there are some of us that are more concerned about being right than we are concerned about being like Christ. Someone told me a long time ago, you're never persuasive when you're abrasive. Would you agree with that? Proverbs 16 and verse 23 says, from a wise man comes, or from a wise mind comes wise speech. The words of the wise are persuasive. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Gang, I'm going to close this series with this. I have a dream. I think one of the greatest speeches ever given was Martin Luther's I Have a Dream. I'm stirred, Martin Luther King. I'm stirred every time I hear it. Well, I have a dream for this church. I look forward to the day when believers can talk about subjects like heaven and hell and politics and economics and gay marriage and Israel and on and on and on, whatever the difficult topics are, without getting up and walking out, without raising their voice, without assigning labels of liberal or um, conservative or whatever the label that you want to give, without getting angry, without flaming out at one another on Twitter and Facebook. How many of you know it's easy to be critical from a distance? Twitter and Facebook these days have taken rock throwing to an art form. And I look forward to the day when there's a church that Democrats and Republicans can come together and worship and discuss the issues and vote separately, doesn't matter. Whatever your convictions are, search your convictions and make sure they're grounded in the Word. But that we, that, that we, that we love each other. In fact, I wrote it in, in my book that we decided early on, 23 years ago, when we started Seacoast, that we would begin measuring maturity a little different than a lot of places do. Instead of using what you know as the measuring standard for maturity, we would use who you love. Who you love. Being mature is not so much about what you know. It's about who you love and loving people who maybe see things a little bit different than you do. Jesus said it this way. As He was praying for His disciples, He said, A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the bottom line. And that sounds like a pretty good plan to me. What do you think? Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, today for your word. I thank you for the fact that you know our hearts and you search our hearts. And I pray today that we would be transformed by your word 
that we would be conformed into your image just a little bit more today than we were yesterday. Or a little bit more today than before we walked into this building or wherever we happen to be sitting. And God, in the next few minutes, I pray that you would challenge us and that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.